Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you listen to episode 147 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Four years I've been doing this now, almost to the week, which is pretty wild. That went quick, didn't it? Feels like a lifetime ago, I believe they say. Anyway, thanks for tuning into this episode. Hope you enjoy it. I sure did. It's round two with my friend Cersei Wallace and uh, a total pleasure this one. So if you follow me on social media or listen to the podcast at all closely, you may have heard me harping on about the fact that I've spent the last couple of months working on the latest volume of Curator, an independent snowboarding publication. And as well as editing the whole thing, I also wrote a couple of stories for this year's edition, one of which was an interview with Cersei, who regular listeners will know I had on this show a couple of years ago. We got on really well during that chat and I've ended up staying in touch and becoming friends, albeit in a very 2021 email and the occasional message way. Anyway, when it came to the curator piece, I thought I might as well record it as an episode of the podcast as well as use it as material for the story I did end up writing and this episode is the result. I recorded this one a few days before Christmas at the end of 2020 and as a result both myself and Cersei were in a pretty reflective mood I'm going to say and the result was this really warm enjoyable and insightful conversation with one of our little world's most interesting and successful personalities. It's more of a I'm going to say it Adam Buxton style ramble chat than an interview per se, but no less revealing for that, I would say. Anyway, I'll be back at the end for the usual instalment of Housekeeping Corner, but in the meantime, here's me and Cersei. Enjoy. So funny, isn't it? Because we've been doing these we've all been on zoom for the whole year and it's still just a hassle isn't it doesn't matter like technology how. is always a challenge for me yeah well thanks Cersei. yeah nice to happy see to be here yes nice to see you too happy holidays yeah so you good i'm good i'm ready yeah and what so what's the plan what are you going to be doing um we are home we have some friends coming over for New Year's Eve, our Japanese friends. We have a family that we've gotten to know from uh, Papa. From, from uh, They live down the street from Hemingway, her best friend, but they are a Japanese family that have five kids who are like our buddies. And then we're going to go see other friends. We've been potted up with these families, mostly because of Hemingway. Yeah. And then we're going to go see our friends in L.A. and spend a couple nights there. And then we're going to drive to Jackson. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. So you're going to go see, stay with see Travis. Trav. Yeah. We're going to go stay with nice. Trav for the new year. Uh, I think we're going to stay for like 12 days and actually try to get our shred on. Because um, as you well know, it's not that easy to get on mountain this year. So yeah, we're really yeah. going to lean into our... Uh, resort relationships. Ah, <laughs> oh, that sounds. God, I'm jealous of that. Yeah, obviously, the whole of Europe is like resort-wise is pretty much closed down. I think 
I mean, this is how bad yeah. it's got. I'm planning. I'm planning Scotland. That's my. <laughs> that's going to be my season. Well, you can still come here, can't you? Uh, I don't think we can. No. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, I think because we've got this new <laughs> variant, we're uh, we're not allowed oh, to travel. Right. Oh my god! Right now, it is so crazy. This is so crazy. It's like straight out of Handmaid's Tale or something. It's yeah, very, it's like very, shit sci-fi. It's very scary. So we're currently on the banned list, I think, from most countries around the world. And it is frustrating because um, I've been working on, I've been doing the panel with Travis for Natural Selection. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm I'm not going to be able to come, which is really annoying <laughs> after after doing this this part. So um, at the time when we started doing it, I was still quite hopeful that maybe it would be possible. But yeah, don't think we'd be going to be going anywhere for a little while. Yeah. What do we know about the variant that just it's a mutation? We don't have any data on whether it's vaccine efficacy or effectiveness works with the variant. Well, over here. So they found it in the southeast of England and around London. And they, I can tell you what happened basically. So essentially that people here think they've known about it for quite a while. Okay. But they, but they announced it on Saturday and they basically put London and most of the Southeast, which is obviously the most populated area of, of England. Uh, they basically put, like they did a press conference five o'clock Saturday and said, you got into lockdown at midnight. Don't, don't leave London. So obviously, but obviously everyone just left London. Oh, right. Um, and now they think that has facilitated the spread of it around the rest of the UK. And they're basically saying that they think it doesn't affect the efficacy of the vaccines. But then about half an hour ago, just before we started talking, they did another press conference and they announced they found yet another variant. So a third variant from apparently South Africa, which is even more transmissible than the latest one. Okay. So they've just put the rest of the country, the rest of the Southeast of England into lockdown, including where I live. Cause we'd been kind of like just about getting away with it. Right. And, um, yeah. So boxing day. 26 we we all go into full lockdown again oh my goodness yeah i mean yeah it's kind of it's just 2020 isn't it the gift that keeps on giving yeah well i really hope that uh we're we're moving into a a better better days hopefully let's hope this uh, astrological conjunction and the age of Aquarius is is moving us into a a better time because it has been quite a shocker. How's it been for you? I mean, there's a lot that I could complain about, but I think there's a lot of appreciation for the family time. You know, I, I, I'm just really impressed with my eldest daughter and her ability to adapt to, you know, she was supposed to go off to college and play soccer and, you know, she ended up coming home. 
she is about to go back um, on the on the first. But you know, just having this time together, it was like a bonus year for us as a family. And there's been a recalibration of priorities that have been really wonderful. Um, you know, I have been a total nomad my whole life, so to not be traveling with regularity and, you know, kind of perpetually on adventures or, or working has actually been a really nice kind of break from the intensity of, of my work. And I just, you know, have really kind of gotten back to, you know, fundamentals of, of what is important in my life and had some time to reflect on, um, you know, what, what really matters. And, and that has been transformative in a lot of ways. I have healed my body. I have like totally, um, prioritized, you know, health and wellness and nutrition in a way. And I just think like in that way, it's been really, really a unique time because how, how many years of our life would we be able to really kind of tap out from the intensity? You know, I'm not, I haven't, I couldn't tell you the last time I drove to LA before COVID, I was doing that twice a week. So in that way, it's been great. Um, inevitably work has been more challenging. You're working harder for less. Um, the contraction of the marketplace is, has, is, it's hard to watch. And certainly, you know, I'm on the front lines of that and, um, you know, media, this huge media shift, but I also am kind of the eternal optimist. Like I always see opportunity. And so I think, you know, I've also been really lucky. I have a paying job. Wasserman has been phenomenal through all of this. I have more appreciation for my employer than I've ever had. Um, so, you know, I think it's like first world problems. So many people are suffering and, you know, I'm a total empath. So I feel that kind of collective pain body and I think it's going to get really bad, at least economically. And certainly, I mean, a million people have died. That's, that's, that's a lot for us, but I do think that there is a reset happening. Um, and I'm hopeful. I also think that, you know, there are some pretty intimidating challenges ahead of us, technocracy and, you know, our wealth disparity in this nation is, and, and yours is just completely out of control. Um, as you can probably see by this latest stimulus, like it really benefits the uber rich. Like there's just, you know, there is some correction I think that needs to happen. And, and I'm also hopeful that, you know, in American politics, if we can win Georgia, that, you know, we will be um, moving in the right direction. I think inevitably there will continue to be challenges. We're living in a, in a you know, a, in a really intense time. We've just sped up, right? Everything's happening so fast. Um, and as I get older, I want to slow down. So it's harder to keep up, <laughs> but I'd say overall we're doing pretty good. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about, you know, this situation almost 
couldn't have been more perfectly designed to sort of show up the fault lines in you know the the government the, like the systems of government that we have the systems of economics that we have i think the thing that i find really interesting is how people are still quite unwilling to even in, the, in even in the face of this situation it's still quite unwilling to kind of even countenance actual systemic change you know people are still like quite happy to i mean i'll take the example of our country you know my politics i think are pretty similar to yours i'm i'm pretty liberal pretty left and our government although by no means as right-leaning as yours is is still pretty light uh right-leaning and even now you know with what's going on you know that in our country right now we've literally got you know lorries parked in the whole of you know like mile-long queues supply chain issues we're facing an, a no-deal brexit we've got you know sixty thousand people dead like whatever all those statistics right. and people are still really willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the people who've obviously done a really really shit job yeah um and that and and it it's quite wild really isn't it because it yeah there's there's partisan politics involved and and sort of you know identity politics and people sorry culture wars would be a better way of saying it mm -hmm. but at the end of the day people have still handled this really really badly you know like in certain countries have handled it really well and that's almost an inarguable fact really um, and it just goes to show how deep deep rooted how attached we appear to be to these systems even when we're essentially getting kicked in the teeth by <laughs> like which yeah. is actually really happening now like you said a million people dead in your country sixty thousand dead here you know the worst recession since the war that those things are real but everyone's like oh well it's not their fault there's a pandemic going on you're like well <laughs> it's, yeah it's kind of a bit more going on than that so do you feel hopeful i mean obviously you know i follow you on insta and obviously we chat a little bit uh, there was a palpable sense of relief coming from you when the results came in in November. Are you feeling positive that, that there can be change? I am. Obviously, Georgia, notwithstanding. I am. I think when you, uh, you know, I, Biden was never my first choice. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Bernie fan. So for me, it was, you know, of all of the early candidates, I think Biden was probably the lowest one on the, on the totem pole for me, but I think, yes. I mean, first of all, just to get rid of the administration that we currently have is a huge relief. It, it's so incredibly toxic and dysfunctional. It's like, you know, of course I feel relief. Um, hey, Hemingway. <laughs> but I, I, I think the work is just getting started. Right. And, uh, I think there is a lot of, of really dramatic policy changes. And, you know, I consider Biden kind of GOP light, right? Which is why he ultimately got elected, because he um, was electable in that way. You've got your kind of conservative, you know, left of center politics or, or um, voters who... Um, who really got on, on the Biden train. Um, but I don't, you know, I would have been so, it was so stressful. It was really 
like, I feel like I'm still recovering from 2016 because it was such a shock. Like when the pussy grabber stuff came out, you know, I thought, okay, that's it. Right. Like you can't be elected to the highest office in the land with that level of lack of decorum and just blatant disregard for, you know, for, uh, just common respect amongst, you know, your constituents. It's just, it was so incredibly shocking and it just revealed, um, how broken we are and divided we are as a nation. And then not knowing for those four or five days, like it really, we really did not know. And I think I have some PTSD from the last election where, um, you know, I really, you know, I wasn't sure. And when you had, you know, really active, um, participants at the highest level of government trying to kind of deconstruct the voters will and blatant, uh, uh, efforts to oppress the black vote. And, um, it, it was so brazen. It yeah, was it, so- I, I was, I was going I was going to say shame. The shamelessness of it was, and like the naked power grab that was going on was just oh horrifying. God. Oh my God. And it is just like such a huge relief that at least, you know, we saw, we've also seen the cracks in our democracy through this process. And it is certainly my hope that, you know, we will spackle those enough that um, we don't we're not at risk for that kind of tyranny again in the future, but we have a lot of work to do. And I think that as long as we continue as a nation to prioritize um, corporations and productivity over people, we're going to continue to suffer. And I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of, of the new green deal and, you know, the only way we're going to beat China is through technology and uh, emotional intelligence. And I think that those two things can, could certainly converge in a way that allow us to have a, you know, another great run, but it really does feel like this is the end of the empire. And I, I I don't know how we, you know, I, you know, certainly your country was the empire for a long time. Then we took over. And um, I just think that there's radical shifts happening. But I also believe that, you know, at least in my and my children's lifetime, there is a lot of reason for hope. And we can certainly um, continue to uh, do the work that is required of us to help usher in, you know, what I hope is, is a generation of, uh, progressive, uh, policy changes that allow for a more equal and just society. So you mentioned that you're at the sharp end with our, with our industry of, of dealing with the effects of this year. So how, how's that been? Could you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're just in this radical shift, right? The media's gone. And it really has now. <laughs> it's really gone. It's really gone. And so, yeah. 
I think, you know, the great thing about action sports is our adaptability and that we have always been considered fringe. We've really struggled to fit into, you know, a, a, a mainstream trajectory. We're always having to kind of, you know, either pivot or, you know, create, <clears throat> be pushed to create new ideas <clears throat> or new ways of broadcasting. You know, it's funny because I, I really think action sports kind of created short format content, right? Like, yeah, I think you're right. Short format uh, entertainment in sports entertainment, we really built like a whole new category. And so I think, um, I think there, there's a lot of really interesting things happening, especially in like streaming. I think that as a new medium is going to continue to be really compelling and how we can actually live broadcast from, you know, particular environments um, that allow for people at home to participate in a very organic and connected way is really interesting where conversation, real-time conversation can happen where there is community building happening within, you know, what I call the virtual plaza is a, is an exciting prospect. Um, how that shakes out. I don't know. Inevitably, um, you know, the twitches and the caffeines and the Facebook mixers of the world are really built on e-gaming, but I think that there certainly is uh, going to be an evolution of entertainment of our kind of niche genre sports through those platforms. I think they're all kind of taking a look at, you know, how, how do we become juggernauts of entertainment, not just e-gaming platforms. So, you know, it's like with the contraction of, I mean, Print has been going away for a long time. And now with, you know, uh, American media's demise of all of the endemic pubs, I think it also allows for, you know, like Transfer Magazine and what you're doing and what uh, Charlie's doing with Beach Grit. Like these are, in, in my mind, incredible opportunities for us to... Um, to be progressive because participation's through the roof, right? Like we, yeah. can't, we can't paddle out in Cardiff. There's 200 people at our home spot out there, most of them on wave storms. But, wow. you know, board sellers are, are crushing right now. You, you know, I'm sure, you know, split boards are through the roof. Um, skateboards, you can't even, they're having major supply chain issues because they can't get enough wood. You know, there. If you really look at the data of participation, COVID has allowed for everyone to kind of their home, right? So, if you live in the mountains, or you live at the ocean, or you live near a skate park, those are the things that you're doing. There's not a lot of cost associated with with those things outside of you know lift tickets. But I think backcountry exploration is is been radically. Um, I mean, you, we'll see more people in the backcountry this year, you know, than ever, which will come with some risks. But, uh, you know, if you really look at the data of participation, I think we're probably nicely positioned for some really radical opportunity. But in the short term, you know, 
brands are struggling. I think the market conglomeratization has been just a death nail for um, for us as an industry. And my hope is is that the overall effects of COVID, you've got some of the major players whose names I will not mention because I have to continue <laughs> to do business with them, but but they will ultimately either give up because it, you know it's it's just not a big enough market share for them or they'll pull back enough that it will allow for emerging or smaller brands to um, the ones who can really connect with a level of authenticity and are nimble enough to adapt to new ways of communication and consumer engagement to thrive and I really, I, I, I really hope that, you know, the inherent rebellious nature of the sports that we love will create an opportunity for those smaller brands or emerging brands, the DTC brands, the brands that are actually doing some things, you know, and whether that's environmental considerations in manufacturing processes or, you know, progressive um, you know, internal efforts or really, you know, um, you know, creating super innovative solutions and, uh, and entertainment for its fans. That's a really hopeful and positive outline that, and that I'm really glad to hear you say that because, you know, it's a couple of things to say about that, isn't it? There's, contextually that's that's adheres to the kind of classic cycle doesn't it you know the model that we always talk about in action sports you know we always talk like skating's the obvious one but snowboarding's had them as well snowboarding's had these cycles and i was thinking about that the other day and it's really interesting to talk about that because you're right participate you know there's always this gap isn't there between participation and then how that filters out and affects the industry you know, there's, it's 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 never always like a, a perfect link, is it? And what we're seeing right now is a very, you know, stark example of that. As you say, you know, we've got more people doing it than ever. I mean, at my at my local shitty wave down here, there's 200 people, and every time we go in, you know, I've got friends messaging me like, "Where can I buy? You know, where can I buy a, a foamy? Where can I buy a longboard? Like, can't get them anywhere." Same same deal. So there's obviously right. There's obviously that, but then you, but then like you say, like, but then the magazines that we grew up with are dying, you know, like those cultural voices are dying. And so there's that disconnect. And I've been thinking the same because also, whatever, I'm not going to derail this into an Olympic conversation, but that is obviously happening in the next two years. So you're going to have all these new consumers and then you're going to have that, which is always, is a, there's always a bounce, like, you know, we've obviously both been working in this industry for years. You always see that in the years afterwards, there's always new opportunities. There's always, you know, more, more money flying around at the end of the day, post Olympics. And so it is really fascinating what's going to happen next on this. And when you, and like you say, when you combine that with this almost like media vacuum that there is now endemically than we're used to, it is, it, it, it can be positive because if you look at that example of skating, you know, the classic sort of narrative, late 80s, early 90s, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? You know, the big 
the big yeah. five brands struggled and then you had all the new brands come through who did basically you know world industries new deal or whatever who did basically inject this new cultural energy and transform the the culture long term so yeah it's nice to hear a positive take on it i am quite interested in you know in the specifics of what you do though because obviously you're working with athletes you're working directly with brands and you know that's almost like a canary in the coal mine sort of scenario isn't it that you know if you, if there's if there's shortages if there's if there's budgets being cut you you're going to you're going to feel that aren't you really at the at the with what you do so have you are you seeing a shift in like the way that the athletes and and riders are, are they being affected by this oh in, god in the opportunities yes. oh we have so, only yeah we have only begun to see the the effect of this um, a lot of people had contracts that were, um, you know, if you had a force majeure clause in your contract and you were getting paid more than six figures, you had to correct and you had, there was nothing you could do about it. And even the brands that did quite well, I would say there are few and far between who didn't trigger force majeure clauses in their contracts, which for those of you who don't know, force majeure is essentially an act of God. Um, and almost every contract in the world has one so that if you can't provide services or payment because of an act of God, which a pandemic essentially is by definition, an act of God, you, um, you have flexibility to revise the agreement and the commitment to each other. So typically on the athlete side, that means if you couldn't show up for something, if you can't travel, that means you're not in breach of contract for the brands. It means if they've had a major uh, event that affects their, their bottom line or their EBITDA, then they can, just tell you that you're taking a pay cut and it's up to you whether you want to stick around or not. And so we've seen that. I mean, that's the word of the year for us uh, on the management side, for sure. Um, and even the juggernauts are utilizing it. So we've seen like a massive correction because, um, you know, there was pretty robust benefit to athletes, even ones who weren't necessarily like Olympic hopefuls or are just, you know, stars in their respective fields, um, through, you know, content or entertainment. And now when you have the, the big, the big boys, um, basically saying, you know, everyone's taking a pay cut, this is what we're offering you take it or leave it. There's no leverage left in the marketplace because everyone's like, sure, go see what else you can find. Um, and no one, no one is in a position to, um, you know, there, there's top down, uh, you know, from, from management down saying, Hey, look, we've got to cut our budgets by this much and this is how we do it. So uh, you're going to see fewer athletes, um, you're going to see flu fewer athletes and of those athletes who continue to have robust sponsorship deals, you know, there's going to be less of them and they're going to be smaller. And that's across the board. That's, that's, uh, you know, other than, 
you know, stick it ball union collective bargaining and union league deals, um, we are going to continue to see that, uh, that correction, I think for the next couple of years. How do you think that's going to affect the, the, the culture? Um, you know, it's hard to say because as we discussed kind of the, the ebb and flow of action sports growth and contraction, you also kind of get to a place where, you know, even in like traditional sports, you look at some of the other sports, you know, that have had Olympic occlusion or, you know, look at gymnastics or, you know, you, you get to a certain point where brands don't have to pay as much you have enough participation from youth or kids who, you know, want to be stars or are inherently talented that, um, that you really, you know, from a, a brand's investment standpoint, you know, parents start paying for, uh, their participation, right? The brands don't have to fund that. And I think that the, the, the biggest bummer about that is that you will see, you know, one of the things I love the most about skateboarding is that you can just be a shitty kid from a broken home who has had, you know, a really rough life, have an incredible experience and opportunity in skateboarding, right? And and there, I think there's very few genres of, of sport that really, that's a reality. Like any kid, you know, from the streets of Philly to, you know, the, the boroughs of, of New York can have like a really robust, successful opportunity. Um, and I think that will, you know, inevitably that will become harder and harder. And so, you know, uh, it, it's it's hard to tell. I hope that the certain kind of tenets of skateboarding and and surfing and snowboarding remain, but I also think inevitably there's some homogenization that happens. And I would, you know, I, I rest that solely. You know, I, I look at, you know, skateboarding has is totally beautiful and amazing, but it's also like really really misogynistic. It is inherently built of bullies at brands. It is a um, an incredibly uh, arrested uh, culture in a lot of ways. Um, but there are certainly kind of, you know, I think a lot of that is is. Uh, shifting and that there are, are, there's so much happening in that space that I think will eclipse that soon. And that is an exciting prospect. Snowboarding has always been, I think, pretty uh, equal in its, its opportunity for girls and boys. Snowboarding has already kind of hit that ceiling, in my opinion, like you have to come from money to, yeah, I was going to say that. Like, it's already homogenized, as you put it, isn't it? Yeah. And you can see, especially in like the North American mountain town culture, where it's tradition, you know, it's traditionally there is a route for blue collar kids to to like have lifestyles and and find careers. That's kind of going a bit, isn't it? As you know, as as very obvious market forces like lift ticket prices go up and like you know places get gentrified, and it does just push 
those opportunities out. Just as a bit of an aside, I mean, that's one of the consequences we're seeing in the, in the UK of Brexit, actually, because um, that that kind of rite of passage British kid can go and live in the mountains in the French Alps right? and work and work for a British company. That's going to go now because those companies that, that have had like basically that could do that and could afford those opportunities are all going to get squeezed by Brexit. So we're definitely, I'm definitely expecting to see in the next 10 to 15 years, like a complete narrowing of the demographic of people who can actually, I think if I started out now, I couldn't have the career that I've had because I just wouldn't have the money to do it. Right. You know, as right. a kid, because I certainly didn't come from money. I certainly, you know, I just sort of worked out a way of doing it like you did with, with your path, you know, like, and that's, that's, I mean, that's probably an interesting question, actually. Do you think now it, you could have the same career that you, that you, that you did as a, as a snowboarder? No way. No way. Which is, which is all, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's a really horrible thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's really you know, sad. That, it's really sad. Because obviously your your path was that classic, you know. Yeah. Not not your birthright. Let's put it that way. But you found a way of making it happen, didn't you? I did. I did. And you know, it's so funny. Like I didn't really realize, and I think I've talked about this with you before, but I didn't really realize how hard it was, like, in business to be successful until I was, you know, in my mid forties. Right. Because I was just following my passion and, you know, I kind of, you know, followed it with reckless abandon during a time of incredible opportunity. But, you know, it's so funny because I have so many kids ask me now, like, I really want to be in sports management. I have a, a you know, a, a degree from Syracuse or, you know, some prestigious college. And I can I come intern for you? And it's just like, you know that is uh the obvious path but the ones that interest me more are the shitty kids who who kind of fall upwards who do the work and are are interested and just super passionate about whatever it is that they're doing to the point of obsession right and you know i ha i have to continue to believe in some level you know in the American dream, right? That if you want something bad enough, anything is possible if you put your mind to it. And I still believe some of that is true, but I have been definitely jaded by the reality of just the state of the world. And that is, you know, legacy wealth, trickle down economics, uh, a, a myriad of, of, um, of challenges and, you know, it is, I think it is so much harder now as someone who comes, you know, who came from, you know, poverty. I had totally loving, functioning family, but we, we had no legacy wealth. We don't have any money, never owned a home. Um, that it, it's just, it's really hard to break out of that. And it, it's becoming increasingly difficult. And I think it, it will continue to be a challenge. And that is, that is truly a sad reality. And I think also that goes back to, you know, our political landscape and, and, and finding ways to create balance and equity for, um, 
for our our next generation yeah i had a bit of a rant about that on a previous episode actually at the end of one of the episodes because what i found when i do the podcast is if i if i speak politically or post political things instagram always like you know like people and people you get to stay in your lane and all that (laughs) but it even on that even on this level though that we're talking about it's just it's just a a demonstration of how politics does affect people's lives even as something as glib and frivolous as as ultimately what we do in the like you say in the wider scheme of things like but these things do have consequences and and in opportunities for people and that that is if that's not politics i don't know what is really you know that's that's a real thing and that's one of the reasons why it's worth getting wound up about i think I do too. And I think there's like a lot of cognitive dissonance, but like through all of this kind of election intensity, I was, I really came to a kind of like an epiphany that there was really only three reasons that you would continue to want this particular administration to continue to reign. And that was um, wealth aspiration, right? There's something about like feeling uh, a kindred with with Trump that makes you feel good, like that you know he's he's rich, he's gaudy, he is all about wealth, right? So there's something about that that you know is aspiring to to be wealthy and that liking him somehow triggers something. Uh, so wealth aspiration, just racism, right? There's a ton of that. And, th- and that is a, a fundamental problem that we have, you know, for, for 400 years in this country. And then three, wealth uh, maintenance. So, you know, maintaining your wealth, your fam- your family's wealth, and being anti-taxation and giving advantages to corporations, you know, much like trickle down economics thinking that somehow that's going to end up with you is, is, is favoring corporations over, you know, I mean, who's mad about a $15 minimum wage? I mean, (laughs) and when you look at the 73 million people that voted for this guy, they all probably need, you know, either they're they're doing everything they can to maintain their own personal or family wealth, right, through minimizing taxation or expenditures or, or, or tax benefits for the wealthy. Or you are like most people who really need health care and, you know, want these fundamentals, but somehow, you know, bought his whole thing hook line and sinker and i think that you know a a lot of it is just ignorance and a lot of it is just anger um and somehow thinking that you know he's on the on the on the good old boys team when reality like you know that's not the truth and it is a incredible virus of misinformation that continues to be a problem. And I hold Facebook accountable. I hold all the technocrats accountable to that. They play into that hook, line and sinker. There's no question in my mind that that is probably our biggest threat is 
is, I mean, look at the, the hacking that's going on here at the highest levels of government from Russia. China is constantly up in our business. Like th those are the real threats, in my opinion, that we continue to kind of ignore. And with Facebook's new rules and regulations, losing autonomy over our own bodies, medical and uh, freedom, um, you know, all of those things concern me deeply. Um, and I think that, you know, those are, those are going to be the, the major challenges that we have. The wars are going to be fought in technology and, um, and that is where we really need to, to put our attention because, you know, b between finance and technology, that is the, the next biggest threats, I think, to our cultures and communities. Cool. Um, well, I should ask you about some snowboarding stuff, really. Cool. <laughs> so you, you, you got the gist that, that this is also for Curator Magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Taz, Taz, he still wants me to ask this question. Like, I, think the, I think the question about weed is basically, um, do you think weed has a part to play in this type of theorizing um as in like someone like nicholas is obviously smoked a lot of weeds oh god um, no that's ridiculous yeah i mean the, I, the, I, that's idea, I, the idea that cannabis somehow triggers some kind of mental i mean no yeah that's why i not really asked you that question so i think we'll skip that one oh i mean um, I'm, ha I'm happy to answer it i think if that if someone really wants to discuss that then let's dig in because i feel very strongly that you know, the, that cannabis legalization is a, uh, an opportunity for healing and healing real, real healing modalities. And I feel the same way about psilocybin, uh, and MDMA used in a, in a, um, therapeutic, uh, capacity, much like ayahuasca or DMT. Like I really, really, really believe strongly in uh, natural healing modalities, yeah, and things that are um, from the earth, plant-based medicines that have been used for centuries, if not, you know, thousands of years, which I think is testament. I mean, w once we know that William Shakespeare smoked cannabis, like, you know, there's there's an expansiveness and an opportunity for growth that these kinds of plant medicines allow for. And we have been destroyed globally from big pharma. We, we do not take holistic approach to healing um, by and large in, in, you know, first world environments um, and big pharma has become such a big business that we are not solving problems and real root cause issues, whether that's physical, mental, or spiritually through big pharma, um, uh, medicine. And I really, you know, that is not saying that, that medicine and science aren't real. There's no question in my mind that, you know, advancements of humanity and uh, the human potential is radical in terms of, of the things that we can solve. Um, it's like a convergence of a toxic 
you know, industrialization, you know, and toxic output, environmental toxicities through carbon, you know, emissions and GMO foods and, you know, all of the things that we're taking in parabens in our beauty products, sulfates and phosphates, glycophosphates, that's in everybody now, right? Like we're, we're, it's in our bodies. We're, 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 you know, it's created by us. We're passing it on generationally and it is a carcinogen. This is fact. This is science. And so finding ways for us to heal our bodies, um, and, and nurture, our bodies and and what we take in, like all of those things, um, play into our 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 overall health. And we have kind of been programmed to think that we need to go see a traditional medical doctor for most of our issues. When in reality, um, w- what they prescribe tends to be like a band aid, but comes with a myriad of side effects. And, you know, opiates as a painkiller, as a perfect example, right? Like that, that it was, you know, the opiate problem is really rooted in, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical industry's bottom line being more important than, you know, helping people who were in pain. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you could, like you say, agriculture, the drug industry, the pharmaceutical industry riddled with examples of capitalism run amok. And, and so this, sense- goes, this, this goes back to my, to my statement around, you know, um, you know, weed, you know, it, 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 it does have issues, right? We know the brain's not fully developed till 25. So you shouldn't be consuming opiates, nor should you be consuming cannabis or anything else that, that alters your mind before it's, you know, in, in God's, you know, perfect makeup of the incredible thing and all of the, the, the nuances that make up our human function. Like it's radical, right? That, that we even walk the earth and have critical thinking. It's, it is, it is a miracle. And, you know, the, the idea that um, any influence on that could trigger some different thought process, that is real. I totally believe that. But I yeah. think by and large, you know, certainly cannabis solves more problems than it creates. And whether that's pain relief, non-addictive pain relief, which we need that solve, right? There's no yeah. question and there's science to back up, you know, that THC and CBD, and that's just the beginning, really do turn off some pain receptors and we have what's called an endocannabinoid system in our bodies. And the science just hasn't been there yet. And a lot of that is due to um, Anschlinger and, you know, Nixon era, um, demonization of, of things, um, that occur naturally in nature and have been used, you know, as healing modalities for a very long time. And that's, and that's where I really feel like, uh, government intervention is a problem. FDA, you know, the the way FDA is, is handling CBD in this nation is just laughable. It's totally absurd, you know? So, um, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but, I'm glad. I, well, I, no, I mean, 
I, I, you know, because I'm. It's it's the uh, if we if we bring it back to what we we're talking about, it's the sort of cod psychology approach to like, well, like if you smoke enough weed, then you might end up, you know, thinking all kinds of crazy. You know, that's that's the kind of that's the line of argument, isn't it? You know, it's a very you, simple tin. You know, so reductive might be the polite way of saying it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I and I I completely, you know, it's the word nuance again, isn't it? You know, it's the word. It's that again. There, like I said, there are obviously hundreds of examples, thousands of examples of where um, health issues have been created by by the profit motive like that that's just that is an inarguable statement you know and um and weed is mind altering it is there's no question it is actually a psycho has psychoactive elements which in someone who maybe is predisposed or you know they say that um they say that mushrooms and weed could potentially trigger schizophrenia if that's like in your genetic makeup like rarely does that happen without some kind of uh, genetic mutation or whatever from, you know, a, a family lineage, but it, do, it certainly does happen at some point, you know, that, um, it may be expansiveness of the mind or the things that it opens up triggers something that was inherently inside of you. And that was the trigger. And I totally believe that. And I, I certainly just like any medicine, you know, it needs to be taken responsibly. And if it, um, if it does have negative effects, then it needs to be eliminated. Yeah. 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 How's it going? Hot knife. Still kicking myself that I didn't, uh, just as we, as we were leaving last time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, well, we're basically on hiatus um, I, you know, this is a, a long discussion, but COVID, between COVID and just the California marketplace, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I am in the process of developing our go-to-market strategy, go-to-market strategy for Hot Knife 2.0, and we have some very interesting prospects. And you know, I expect us to be in market by you know summer of 21. So we were in market for two years. Um, you know, it's a great microcosm of, you know, I've, I've really picked the hardest thing really early, which is, you know, kind of how I tend to do things. Snowboarding yeah. as an example. Um, and, you know, I've spent five years really learning how incredibly challenging it is to uh, build a brand in a regulated space that still hasn't been defined in terms of its regulations. Right. Yeah. That sounds like a head fuck. So you just constantly like you have to stay so fluid and be able to pivot and have like so much money that you can just weather all of the shifts and changes in the space Um, no matter what hot knife will continue to live on. And I think once we move a little more towards federal legality, um, multi-state commerce, like LA is where brands will be born and hot knife is an LA brand and, you know, it, it, it's an authentic brand. It has real meaning rooted in, you know, snowboard community, cannabis consumption, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, evocative I, name, all right. <laughs> I, I really look forward to um, the market settling out a bit and us being able to like build a real business based on sound business principles, as opposed to all of the other variants and uh, uh, challenges that exist in the nascent nature of a controlled substance. Yeah. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing how it unfolds. It's kind of starting here. Um, Owen, who you met, photographer, mm-hmm. um, has just launched a CBD brand over here um, called Good Rays, which is a drinkable CBD. Mm-hmm. So I'll uh, I'll send you I'll send you some links to that. I think you'd be quite interested in checking that. Out, obviously, given your knowledge of the game. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I, that, I think- that uh, CBD, the craze here has been totally radical. And I think that the science will show that industrial grade hemp isolate, CBD hemp isolate doesn't do anything that you need a delivery mechanism and whether that's THC or some other botanical that can act as um, the connector between the, um, the actual uh, medicine of CBD is it's, we still have a long way to go. It's very unsophisticated, the approach um, from the regulatory standpoint that doesn't support the science. So there's a lot that, you know, there's going to be so much growth and opportunity in that space. I mean, if anything, that's where it's so exciting for me. Like I am, yeah, I've been doing the same thing for a really long time. I also was able to moonlight in an entirely new category that is going to be a fucking juggernaut. This, this world is going to be, um, you know, as big as alcohol without all of the awfulness of, of alcohol. And there'll be plenty of bad stuff that happens in weed, but I just think, um, you know, how, how many, it's like tech, how many times in your lifetime does something come along like this that is also perfectly aligned with, um, my progressive belief system, which is that this is, you know, this is an opportunity, um, for black and brown people to, um, to participate in a meaningful way in an industry that has demonized them and institutionalized uh, prisons and uh, the business of prisons through the criminalization of, of something. So I'm really excited about the, you know, I I think Kamala who definitely comes from a, um, a prosecutor, I mean, how many black and brown people did she put in jail for cannabis? I don't know. I'm sure it's quite robust, but I think that will be part of her legacy as a brown woman to, to, to fundamentally change that problem in a way that is meaningful and also aligns perfectly with my capitalistic, um, you know, uh, endeavors. And that is, you know, the fact that that those two things can be aligned is my entrepreneurial, you know, capitalist um, motivations with my fundamental belief system and that I could participate in a way that is meaningful in that systemic change is a very exciting endeavor. 
Yeah. I guess I'm interested in two things. Like I'm interested in those couple, like the, you know, that, that is a quite a big milestone. The, the, the fact that that was something that you achieved that opened doors that people are now following today. So I guess it's, it's a, it's a twofold question. Like how, how was that whole process when you were making these breakthroughs, like getting the signature boot, like getting on rides and having, you know, cause obviously when you look back now as well, like that ride team was so iconic. Uh, you know with with the benefit of hindsight like with russell and dale and everybody um so i guess it's like when you look back now how do you how do you remember those two incidents but then also when you look at the doors that that's opened and and how do you see female snowboarding women's snowboarding today okay so there you go just 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 those two okay (laughs) three three um, okay, well, let's start with Ride because that predates Vans. So, yeah, sure. Um, I left Mervyn. You know, it was kind of like I had been Jamie Lynn's girlfriend. I had been in Roadkill. I was kind of starting to finally get some attention. Um, you know, Jamie and I broke up. And part of that for me, I think, was some independence from... Jamie, you know, I was, I really felt like I was living in Jamie's shadow and that I was never going to be fully realized to my potential from a public perception as his girlfriend. It just, it just wasn't, he was just so good and so beautiful and charismatic and talented and artistic. And it was just, there wasn't room for me to shine in his shadow. And that wasn't his fault. It was just, um, you know, my f- fierce ambition to get my moment in the sun, you know, like I wanted to be loved and seen and I felt I wasn't going to be as long as I was on his arm. And that's really sad because he's one of the great loves of my life and I love him dearly to this day. And you know, I'm happily married, but Jamie's the one who got away. Uh, That's your twenties though, isn't it? You know, you make those decisions in your twenties, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't regret them. I'm the person that I am today, but you know, that's like the real heartbreak of my life, you know, and that I made a decision, you know, based on ambition or whatever over, you know, what kind of life we could have had together, but we both had to just go our separate ways. And so we did. And, um, so part of that was the opportunity that presented itself at ride. I was on Mervin, I was at LibTech and, you know, I was just on flow and, you know, I think they, they helped with, um, entry fees and stuff. And I'd had some real results. I won the Northwest series overall a couple times and, um, I won like a couple things in Japan and, you know, I was starting to get a little bit of, of heat. And so, um, I met Tim and Steph and, um, I met Tim when I was in Japan, he was there with Ford and we shredded some trees and just had a fun time. And then we just kind of started conversing about the opportunity. They were Seattle based, obviously that's where I lived. Um, and they welcomed me onto the team and it was like just a once in a lifetime opportunity, especially cause it allowed me, you know, a whole nother adventure 
with the ride team, which was made up of all of these incredibly fucking fantastic dynamic personalities from Russell to Dale, to Jake, to Ford, to Nate Cole, like so many. It's a real, real moment in time, that team, isn't it now? When you look back, oh it's my a re- God. It really like really sums up a period in, in snowboarding, doesn't it? It really does. And I got to participate in that, you know, independently of any relationship, it was mine, you know, and, and I got to establish those relationships and Tim and Steph were like, became, I mean, and still are like my family. Like I ended up living with them. You know, I'm, I'm in my very early twenties, 19, 20, 21 years. And so, and then just the creative energy and the unity of that team dynamic was something that I hadn't really experienced before. And it was just so much fun. It was like, we got to, you know, it was wild and crazy and completely out of control, but also, you know, it's like a rock band. You make really good music for a minute. Right. (laughs) And that was, that was what we did. And, and I think we, there was a, we're so colorful and playful and really took from the kind of skateboarding playbook in a way that no one had up until that time, I think at least in that way, that kind of street culture. So, yeah, it was like, it was, you know, it's a bit reminiscent of, you know, everyone jumping ship to form plan B in, in some ways, wasn't it? You know, it had that kind of energy to it, didn't it? like Russell Definitely. Burton and, 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 and like an independent new company that, that defined something about the spirit of snowboarding at that time, didn't it? Essentially. Yeah. We were like, you know, the poster boys and girls of blunt magazine and, yeah. you know, the core. End. And, and I was, you know, I was scrappy. I get in fights all the time and stuff. So I could like hang with the boys and they treated me, <laughs> you know, as an equal and, you know, always were respectful to me in a way um, that, you know, a lot of men contemporaries haven't been like, it was a really special group of human beings who I, you know, stay in contact with on some level to this day, like Ford's my neighbor, my six-year-old a uh, seven-year-old daughter goes to school and crushes on her son, Jack Ford. And, <laughs> you know, I see Russell Amazing. on occasion. Tim and Steph live in Encinitas. Uh, Dale lives in, in Laguna. And, and I see and get to talk to him somewhat regularly. And then Jake is, you know, perpetually elusive. But we do connect on occasion. And I just have nothing but loving feelings for all of them and that chapter in our lives was just it was just a really really fun ride (laughs) yeah amazing and then and then you did so then the vans thing happened after this obviously like you said yeah we were aware of the fact that that was like quite a significant thing at the time like that that was quite a groundbreaking thing um well sure i think there were only you know tina and shannon um, had pro model boards, you know, I got, I had a pro model board at ride, a few of them. I got one a year, right. It was the same. Everyone on the team, you know, I had four or five pro models and, uh, 
that that was you know i put a lot i really really dug in to the technology and working with the designers to get a tighter turning radius for smaller feet you know like really trying to do my part to um to to find tools and evolution of products that worked for me and hopefully would then apply to other girls and so Vans just evolved kind of naturally. Cheryl Lynn uh, was a rep for them. And Jamie and me and Palmer were their kind of big move into snowboard boots and brought us all in. And I think our contracts were probably pretty similar, which in retrospect is really cool in in the early 90s. Um, yeah. and I got to work on designing my boot, which was the first boot made on a women's last, um, Vans at the time was run by the Schoenfelds. You know, it was basically like a family business. Obviously Steve Van Dorn and his whole family were there. Um, but, uh, I think it was Walter Schoenfeld and his son, Gary, who ultimately took over and then they sold, you know, much later, but it was, it really was run like a family business. And I had, Walter was an exceptional CEO. You know, he was an elderly gentleman, but he was, he he was excited to have a woman in the mix. And I think, you know, Cheryl really championed those deals for us. And also like her being in charge of sales and kind of helping this happened internally and really advocating for having a girl boot. Um, we couldn't keep them in stock. Like my boots sold out, you know, every season for, you know, for quite a while. And the income from that actually allowed me to buy this property in Cardiff, which I built a home on and live in to this day. Both of my children were born in this house. And I always say this is the house that snowboarding built. Which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, what a brilliant, yeah. I mean, how obvious thing to say, but that must be pretty satisfying <laughs> to, yeah. to be able to, to, to be able to kind of think about it in those terms. Yeah. At 26, I bought the property. So I think, you know, I had moved a lot around as a kid and actually having the resources and my stepdad helped me identify the opportunity, but to actually literally dig roots somewhere was really uh, an important exercise in my um, adulting. Yeah, significant moment for sure. And and re- really Vans did did make that happen for me. I mean, obviously I made it happen for myself on some level, but the opportunity to actually build a product made for girls and women with my signature literally on it was, yeah, it was definitely a career highlight. So when you look at women snowboarding today, like uh, given the, the sort of range of experience, how, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like those, Nothing do you but, feel like those, um, an appreciation, like everything I have in my life, my children, my home, the joy that I get in moving my body, the expansiveness of nature, 
the relationships that I've built, uh, the community of snowboarding. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm going to cry. It's uh, an incredible gift. I um, I can't believe my luck. <laughs> it's like you said that you made your own luck. Yeah, well, it's all relative, right? Call in and do the work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it's not like you woke up with the Vans boot line at the end of your bed, is it? <laughs> no, I worked really hard for it. I want, I, but I wanted it really fucking bad, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted. I wanted. You know, it's it's funny. Like through all the personal work that I've done over my lifetime, like when I really get down to it, like all of my ambition is just wanting to be seen and loved or liked. You know, it's all just. Uh, or respected, like I've always just had this need uh, to have a legacy, I guess, to um, to give life all it's got. So, and you, so that's something that you've understood. You said through the work that you've done. That's that's something that you've come to realize as you've done that work and got older. Mm -hmm. Do you know where that comes from? I don't know. Probably some childhood stuff, you know. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think we're just born with these constitutions. Like I have two kids and they're just totally different, right? Like one's needs and desires are so totally drastic different from, different from the others. And so I think there's probably some just innate makeup of us as individuals and, and how our, what our needs are and what we need to express um, are all totally different. And I think there is a lot of luck for me in having fallen in love with snowboarding because I don't, you know, again, it was like, it set me on a path. Like who knows? I was kind of a messed up kid. Like, you know, I did a ton of drugs. I, was there was a lot of anger and angst and you know I was part of the early Eugene punk scene and you know like a lot of real frustration um and snowboarding kind of gave me somewhere to put that and so then I just put it all into that because I saw an opportunity and I just liked the way it felt you know I had been skateboarding for quite a while when I discovered snowboarding. So it was a natural evolution, but, uh, skateboarding really hurt, you know, and it was like, I had chinners forever and, you know, broken hands and arms and, you know, it was just like, and then I found snowboarding and there was just something about the fluidity of it and a, a good powder day. And it was, it's just a totally different sensation where you can just really open it up where skateboarding, like, yeah, we'd bomb parking garages or hills or whatever. And it was fucking death defying. Like, you know, you have gravel in your hands and uh, knock teeth out or whatever. It was just, you know, I'm still, a, you know, a, I was a girl, a woman, like I, there was some fragility that snowboarding, I could just 
kind of let it rip. And I found um, a complete expression that transmuted that angst into just total uh, joy. And also a motivator to learn tricks or work on style or learn how to buckle in on the binding at my binding in at Baker to keep up with the boys doing lines. And, uh, and then that just kind of naturally evolved into a career and that's luck. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the classic, the harder I work, the luckier I get sort of thing though, isn't it? You know, it yeah. is it, 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 it is luck, obviously, because I think all success comes with a large slice of luck yeah. in, in a lot of ways. You know, there's always moments where things happen that, that put you on a certain path. That's obviously everyone recognizes that. But, you know, like I say, your path wasn't certainly wasn't preordained, was it? You know, it comes back to that thing we were talking about earlier, opportunities and you know like you definitely forged your own path like from where you started to where you've where you are now is 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 a it's not it's not like that was no one's gonna have said to you when you were a kid that that was where you were gonna end up you made that yourself didn't you yeah so that's so that's so I think luck is certainly gonna have been part of it but because it always is at the end of the day but don't think it's all down to luck, is it? Really? Yeah. And I think, I guess I also look at luck as a way for me to keep gratitude in my sights. You know, like I'm, yeah. I'm always feeling like even in my darkest days, like I have stuff to pull from that, that allows me to show up in a state of gratitude. Um, you know, even in those challenging times. So there you go. That was me and Cersei, and I hope you enjoyed it. Now, as mentioned at the beginning, if you want to read the story I wrote off the back of this chat, you'll find it in the latest volume of Curator, which is now available to pre-order or even order. Depends on when you listen to this, doesn't it really? So uh, head over to the website. (laughs) I haven't written it down, so I'm going to look it up now curatorpublishing.com I was going to be my guess but I thought I'd better get it right just in case you do want to order what a pro eh Um, I did have 25% off the latest volume but that's only available to subscribers to my newsletter so if you're already a subscriber you've probably already you know taken advantage of that 25% that's quite a you know it's a generous reduction that isn't it If you want that type of offer in the future and also my fortnightly 10 things emails, got many thousands of people on that list now, sign up over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com where you'll also find full show notes to this episode, the full archive, the blog, and what in the trade they tend to refer to as an absolute shitload of content. So go and have a gander. All right, housekeeping corner. So if you follow me on Instagram, I'm at We Look Sideways. You might have noticed quite the debate taking place on one of my recent posts 
regarding the topic of surf localism. Now, before I say any more, let me say that I am fully aware that greater minds than mine have been grappling with this localism question since, well, the dawn of time, really. And I don't think that is overstating it. I mean, you know, Captain Cook, that whole thing was kind of a, you know, you could you could frame that as a local dispute, really. Anyway, people have written books about it. And even off the back of this post, listener Rebecca Olive sent me two fascinating studies on localism that links the practice to place-based pedagogies and ecological sensibilities. While another writer sent me a piece they'd written on localism. The point is, it's well-trodden, poured over territory this. So me posting on Instagram and saying, hey guys, shall we chat about localism with the jazz hands out? It's obviously quite presumptuous to begin with. And a few people did comment on that, fair enough. I mean, you know, I also should acknowledge that to be frank, I am a proper kook when it comes to surfing I mean I can surf but I'm not exactly amazing I came to it pretty late surfing that is not really properly taken up until I was in my early 20s so you know in a lot of people's eyes I'm forever going to be a val my point is I didn't grow up steeped in the culture like a lot of people did and as a result my reference points can be decidedly boomerish and dad-like Owen Tozer for example who grew up nicking copies of Surfer from the local newsagent and annoying all the local surfers at Bantham and hence served a classic surf apprenticeship which was cited quite frequently in the comments on this post is forever taking the piss out of my kookiness um, when it comes to surf use even to the extent of things that I share on Instagram it'll be like fucking kook and anyway I'd say my views on localism definitely fall into this category but that's the thing about approaching these things as a grown-up you can sort of look at it and be like hang on this is a bit fucking weird isn't it anyway the post was inspired by my local scene in Shoreham basically my beloved shit pipes is getting really really crowded now I've been surfing down there on and off for over 20 years now and I still wouldn't really call myself local to be honest you know it's getting more crowded the people that do refer to themselves as the real locals are getting really pissed off. There's more tension in the water. I got called a cunt recently when somebody duck dived into my board when I was just sat there, which was a bit weird. People have been doing loads of pass ag shit posting on Instagram. Fights have started to break out. Generally, it's becoming a bit of a bad scene. Then, you know, I've got at least 15 mates from around here who were definitely vals in the term beloved of beach grit it's vulnerable adult learner if you're interested who've just started surfing they all live in brighton and it's locked down and they've been a bit like wow surfing's a laugh in it and they're having a brilliant time and they haven't got a fucking clue about etiquette um and you know they're just doing that thing of like getting involved riding the white water but according to the graffiti going up and the mutterings of the locals they're not welcome and they shouldn't be surfing there. Now, you know, for me, that is absolute bullshit. I mean, I get the fact that surf etiquette exists for a reason, obviously. And clearly, as I've witnessed myself plenty of times, there's loads of examples of bad etiquette going on down at my little wave. Our little wave, should I say. And I get that localism 
sometimes arises as a way of protecting a threatened resource, although Rebecca Olive had a lot to say about that in the, those two aforementioned studies. But most of the time, I think it's pretty obvious what localism is about. It's about people using surf culture as an excuse to be a bellend and bully newcomers. I mean, if you were serious about the safety and etiquette thing, you wouldn't be trying to sort it out by bullying and shouting at people. You'd be trying to teach them the rules as quickly and as safely as possible. I mean, last time I looked, we don't teach people to drive by screaming at them every time they make a mistake and putting up graffiti. It's just not how you teach people shit. I mean, fuck me. Like, newsflash. And, you know, therein lies the inherent bogusness of a certain type of localism, no matter how much of a Johnny-come-lately surf culture kook I might be. That seems fairly obvious, you know, that strain of localism isn't about safety or etiquette. It's about keeping newcomers away and trying to police who is allowed to surf somewhere. Anyway, it was fascinating seeing the responses to the post. Everything from localism is the surfing equivalent to Brexit to some much more reflective takes on the question. And then there were plenty of people who clearly thought I was an absolute kook for even suggesting a deviation from the good old days. You know, you paid your dues in the water. You got battered by the older surfers if you stepped out of line. I mean... That's the chat that makes me cringe a bit, to be honest. And in a way, that definition of localism kind of reminds me of doorstepping, weirdly enough. If you don't know what doorstepping is, it's basically when you, well, doorstep people to get a quote from them for a story. So let's just say, I don't know, your kid was killed in a fight at a pub and you're a middle-aged parent, within a day or two of things being made public, you're going to get a journalist turning up on your doorstep asking you for a quote. I mean, pretty horrifying, right? But it happens all day long. I mean, that's how they get quotes for those stories. I used to do loads of press trips with tabloid hacks. And after a few beers, without fail, they'd start talking about the best doorstopping, you know, war stories. And I'd always be like, come on, lads, that's fucking... <laughs> That's pretty weird, you know. And they'd always they'd always look at me like I was absolutely mental. Like, what? You know, that's just, just what you do, isn't it? My point is when you're used to it, you think it's normal. But when somebody who's got no reference point takes a kind of sober look at it, you can be like, that's fucking pretty mental, really. The whole doorstepping thing. Same with localism. What, you're questioning whether screaming at beginners or putting up graffiti, telling them to fuck off is the best way of teaching people etiquette, you fucking kook. I mean, my view is something that Corey Schumacher alluded to when I interviewed her a couple of years ago. Those days are over, especially in the UK. And if you think it's busy now, just wait until surfing's in the Olympics, <laughs> then we're really going to have a problem. And that approach, the, the, you know, the old apprenticeship, the good old days, is going to be even less relevant I mean, I prefer the vision of localism espoused by Dave Rastovich, for example, or Andrea Moller in two recent interviews for Type 2 that I did. Both incredible surfers, both very, very progressive and inclusive views on localism, which accept the reality that at the end of the day, you've got to share your knowledge and experience to solve the problem. And the other thing that was interesting about the whole thing is that for everyone that's telling me that was a kook for bringing it up, there was a message from a beginner surfer saying, thank God somebody's mentioned that. I've got no ideas what the rules are and no one speaks to me. So how am I supposed to learn? You know, or I get a message from an experienced surfer, including a couple of like, to be honest, the absolute best surfers at my little 
corner of the surfing world who were like, yeah, nice one. Thanks for bringing it up. Someone's got to talk about it. Anyway, Avaganda at the post on my Instagram over at We Look Sideways, if you're interested. Still rumbling away. Every now and again, I still get the old comment. If you want to message me, you can DM me on Instagram, but be warned, I do anonymously share them if I think they're interesting. Um, or you can email me at podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. All right. I think that's about it for this week. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.